Time for swordplay. Alex, President Trump, used pepper bombs, smoke grenades, and rubber bullets to clear Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. so he could walk to St. John's Episcopal Church and hold up a Bible after the historic church had been partially burned during a, during a protest. Many have denounced the president's actions. What are your thoughts? You know, Nick, that's what I call unnecessary force. All he had to do was hold up a Molotov cocktail, and the protesters would have cooperated and cheered him on. There it is. <laughs> Good political strategy, I guess. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood, and I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Zephaniah chapter 1. Zephaniah chapter 1, and like all books, when we start a new book study, we like to go through a little bit of background, discuss who uh, wrote the book, who was it written to, why was it written. So Nick, why don't you kick us off, uh, Zephaniah verse 1. Who is Zephaniah? Well, like most of the minor prophets, we know little about the man himself. However, there are a couple of interesting possibilities that stand out from verse 1 concerning Zephaniah. His father, Cushi, or Cushai, may have been of Ethiopian descent because Cush in the Bible is located in the upper or southern Nile area. Militating against this view, though, is that Cushi or Cush is also a proper name for a person. You can see Jeremiah 36, verse 14, or the superscription in Psalm 7 for that. Second, Zephaniah may have been of royal descent since his great-great-grandfather was Hezekiah, as it says there in verse 1. That's where the genealogy terminates. Militating against this view is that Hezekiah was a, a, a common name in Israel. It's uncommon in the Hebrew Bible, but apparently was common in Israel back in the day. And also, if this Hezekiah was King Hezekiah, it seems likely that his royal status would have been named Hezekiah the king or King Hezekiah, something like that, which you don't see that in the text, though. At the same time, that such an extensive genealogy is provided, going back, what, four generations? That may indicate the royal descent. I mean, why else include four generations going back to Hezekiah, except that that Hezekiah was a somebody? So uh, that's a bit about Zephaniah that I discovered. Alex, anything you want to toss in the mix here? Yeah, I... uh just dovetailing on that last part that you said, I agree. It seems like verse 1 is written to establish Zephaniah as the royal prophet, which would uh, give what he has to say from Yahweh extra weight in the eyes of his audience, and we'll talk about who his audience probably were uh, in a moment. Interesting note, though, Zephaniah's name means Yahweh has hidden. So the audience may be thinking that Yahweh has left them, but the letter will show that they, Israel, are the ones who left Yahweh. Funny how we tend to project our own problems onto our God. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, some some actually speculate he was born during the reign of Manasseh, who shed very much innocent blood during his reign, according to 2 Kings 21, verse 16, also 24, verse 4. So, like Moses, playing off the hidden aspect here, Zephaniah's parents may have hid him from the idolatrous tyrant of their day. So, and child sacrifice was rampant uh, in Israel, so that makes a lot of sense. Definitely. 
Uh, especially if you think about what if he was from the royal line? Well, if uh, child sacrifice is powerful, then royal child sacrifice perhaps was even more powerful. Well, Nick, when did Ze- Zephaniah live? When is he writing this letter? According to verse 1, Zephaniah prophesied in the days of Josiah, king of Judah. Josiah reigned in Judah approximately 640 to 609 B.C. In addition, in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, there are indications that Nineveh has yet to be destroyed. And that's an event that is typically dated to 612 B.C. Also, it seems Zephaniah prophesied before the reform that was led by Josiah during his reign. The way this reads, it sounds like it's something yet future. And that event is typically dated around 622 to 621 B.C., Josiah's Reformation. So based on this, Zephaniah, it appears, he wrote the book sometime during the 630s, maybe even the early 620s at the latest. At least that's when he's prophesying. Uh, What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think that's right. And keep in mind, uh, when Josiah's reform takes place, uh, it's unparalleled. I mean, it's an incredible reform. He focused greatly on destroying uh, Topheth in the Valley of Hinnom, which was a furnace used for child sacrifice. He also uh, gets rid of idol shrines built for Molech, Ashtoreth, Kamosh, and Milcom, most of whom are said to have received child sacrifices. And you can read about this in Second Kings 23. Yet, Josiah's reforms, though good, were too late. Uh, the point of no return seems to have already come during the reign of Manasseh, which, as you pointed out, may have been the time in which Zephaniah was born, and thus his name, Yahweh, has hidden. He has kept aside this this prophet, you know, this one who is still loyal. Well, Nick, what, what does Zephaniah write in his book? Why does he write it? What's the occasion and purpose? Yeah, author date, let's talk occasion and purpose. Zephaniah writes in order to announce the coming day of Yahweh. It is an event which is universal in scope, and that's seen in the the way that Zephaniah describes the visitation upon Judah of God. And he does it by pointing to all four points of the compass. Um, Philistia, which is west of Judah, Moab and Ammon, which are east of uh, Judah, Cush, which is down south, and Assyria, which is up north, or they come from the north. All those points on the compass, north, south, east, west, all that, uh, chapter 2 really highlights this. Again, it's intended to communicate the whole world is going to be impacted by this divine visitation, but it will have unique bearing upon Judah, and specifically, What's in mind here is the destruction of the covenant community, which is going to rival the flood in Noah's day. Now, such momentous destruction is not arbitrary. Rather, the day of Yahweh comes upon even the people of God because, as you mentioned, they have forsaken God, or perhaps uh, more accurately, They have syncretized worship of Yahweh with worship to other gods. Or uh, another way of reading it, they have replaced worship of Yahweh with kind of this amalgamized 
syncretized worship to all these other gods, Milcom, astral deities, Baal, and and that is resulting in this again idolatrous amalgamation. It's just it's that seems to be the occasion and purpose for Zephaniah's prophecy. Yeah, it's a good overview. The day of Yahweh, judgment coming upon them for idolatry, specifically idolatrous practices and the uh, uh, profane things involved there. What are the major themes then that you see in the book of Zephaniah? Nick, talk to us for a minute about that. The, the, the dominant theme in Zephaniah's prophecy is the day of Yahweh. It's mentioned upwards to 19 times, um, and you can read about it, 1, 7, uh, 1, verse 7, verse 14, verse 18, 3, verse 8, 10, 16. Um, at its most basic level, this is a day when Yahweh intervenes into human affairs in order to bring judgment. And in Zephaniah specifically, this is the day of divine wrath and national ruination, that's really highlighted in verse 15, verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1, as Yahweh passes judgment and then severely punishes Judah for their apostasy. And at the same time, Yahweh will punish the surrounding nations. He's going to pour out their blood like dust and their flesh like dung. We'll talk about what that means uh, towards the end of the program, verse 17 of chapter 1. But all the inhabitants of the earth are going to be affected by the day of Yahweh, or day of the Lord, most English translations have it. And so the structure of the book, to play on this dominant theme, chapter 1, verse 2, all the way to 3, verse 8 of the book, is uh, are these oracles of destruction. And then from 3, 9 to the end of the book, verse 20 of chapter 3, you have an oracle of salvation. So destruction first is followed by salvation. That's what I see. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I'll just throw in that Zephaniah seems to focus especially on the ruling class and royalty who are under judgment. Chapter 3, verses 3 through 4 specifies the rebellion of Israel's princes, prophets, judges, and priests, uh, all receiving a message of judgment from the royal prophet himself, Zephaniah. I'm always amazed at how many angles that uh, Yahweh went through to appeal to his audience. Uh, is he trying to get these royal elites to repent? Well, he sends them one of their own, a royal elite. Uh, will they not listen to one of their own? Then he'll send somebody out from the country to come in. And so every perspective that a prophet could come from was sent multiple times in order to uh, get these people to repent and to change their ways. Uh, chapter 1, one of the themes that we'll talk about here in a moment is the theme of cosmic creation and its disillusion, uh, but we'll get to that in just a minute. Who does Zephaniah write to? What's the audience? Yeah, uh, the, the scope of the prophecy of Zephaniah, especially concerning the destruction that's brought on by the day of Yahweh, it's universal. Everything, verses 2 and 3 uh, tell us, will be swept away. Uh, in the flood of destruction, right? And and many of these nations are named uh, specifically as recipients of divine wrath. We talked about Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Cush, Assyria, all those in chapter 2. However, the primary audience seems to be Judah, especially Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, 1 verse 4. Um, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Um, so both 
the judgment to come, as well as the restoration of a remnant, which is pictured a bit in chapter 2, hinted at, and then it really comes on strong in chapter 3. All of this is aimed at, primarily, Judah and Jerusalem. Right. So let's talk about and get into the to the chapter proper. That's all the background stuff. Uh, Ten minutes or less, I guess, is how quickly we did that. That's good. Which is pretty incredible for background <laughs> in a book. But it is. <laughs> uh, so verses two and three, Alex, uh, you talked about the cosmic creation, the dissolution of that, um, and that's what we see here: Yahweh removing all living creatures. Why is Yahweh? removing all living creatures, and how does that introduce judgment on Judah? Yeah, so the way I see it is the removal of all living creatures is not simply a reset of creation like we saw with Noah's family and the flood, although that imagery applies too. Uh, Some of the living creatures in the flood, they were spared. Uh, Noah and his family were spared. To remove all living creatures from the earth, uh, he said even the ones in the sea, right? Well, the ones in the sea probably weren't dying in the flood because it was water it was the sea so if you remove all living creatures from the sky from the sea from the land humans everywhere that really is a complete reversal of creation reverting back to the beginning when Yahweh's spirit hovered over the face of the deep in the darkness before anything was called forth by Yahweh's word and since Israel was supposed to be Yahweh's new creation, brought out of water in the midst of darkness, you know, remember the Exodus where they crossed the Red Sea during the nighttime with the thunderstorm of Yahweh overhead? Hmm. Uh, they are then, after the Exodus, given a rich and fertile land to dwell in, a new garden, a new Eden. And then, uh, based off of that history, I think the best theological way to message the end of that new creation, that is, the end of Israel, was to speak of cosmic reversal. Thus, the judgment on Judah begins by Yahweh speaking of creation's undoing. And we might call that a good hook by which to get the reader's attention. Something like from a Charles Dickens book. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. (laughs) Something along those lines. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, and I... I think one way to understand these opening verses as well is is as hyperbole, kind of uh, exaggerated poetry here. And this seems likely since later on in the book, uh, there'll be verses that indicate that not all people and animals were wiped off the face of the planet. Uh, 2 verse 3, the humble in the land are going to have a chance to be hidden. By the way, Zephaniah's name means... yeah. and then 3 verse 6, the destruction is so complete that there are no inhabitants in the cities. And yet, 3 verse 9, Yahweh's people will have pure speech and they'll go on to worship him. And so I think it's in symbolic, hyperbolic language uh, with an emphasis on the creation of the flood, as you pointed out. Uh, the completeness, the totality of the destruction is pictured and and it also, as mentioned, it's going to touch all of the world. Everybody, all the other nations are going to be impacted by it as well. So just kind of a, a hyperbole there. Sure. Well, Nick, in verse 4, Yahweh says through Zephaniah, he'll cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. Uh, now talk to us for a second about that. Who is Baal and his remnant? Generally speaking, Baal is a Canaanite deity. He is the son of El. He is a god of fertility and the god of the storm as well. 
Worship of Baal included all manner of sex acts because it was believed Baal would send fertile crops when he saw human fertility. So Baal is kind of this cosmic peeping Tom, uh, this pervert who's looking in your window while you're getting busy. Yeah. Um, Israel, they had real problems staying away from Baal throughout their history. Here, though, Yahweh says every aspect of worship to Baal will be cut off, and that's the language of removal. It's going to be removed. The remnant could also be an echo of Elijah's day, when Yahweh preserved a remnant of 3,000 prophets. 7,000. Uh, yes, sorry, 7,000 prophets. Um, and and Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 11, verses 2 through 4. Uh, it's over in First Kings chapter 19, I think is where that's mentioned as well. So now... It's the the prophets of Baal and their name. They have become this remnant that's going to be cut off, removed. And, and again, if they're removed, the idea here is if your name is removed, you're going to be forgotten. Uh, they will be forgotten. So uh, that's a bit of what I see here. What do you have to say, Alex? Yeah, uh, the difficulty sometimes in pinpointing the identity of Baal in every case that we see in Scripture it seems to be in the name itself. Baal is a generic term for lord or ruler. And so Israel at times is said to have served the Baals, that's plural. And that leaves the possibility that Baal at times can refer to a class or type of deity worshipped in the ancient Near East. Uh, you see plural Baals, multiple Baals in Judges 10.6, 1 uh, Kings 18.18, 2 Chronicles 17.3, on and on. There's, there's a long, long list. Additionally, there were deities associated with territories considered the lord of that town or the Baal of that town or the god of that space, like uh, Baal Zephon, Exodus 14.2, Baal Peor, Numbers 25.3, Baal Maon, Numbers 32.38, Baal Gad, Joshua 13.5, etc. It's, again, it's another long, long list. But having said all that, I agree, the most infamous Baal was probably the one you mentioned, the former storm god of Canaan, the son of the Most High God, El. And you can almost hear the rebellious Israelites saying, if Yahweh wouldn't bring the rains because of our rebellion, then we'll appeal to the previous storm god of the land. You know, Baal is heavily associated also with child sacrifice. You get that from Jeremiah 19, verses 4 through 6, chapter 32, verse 35. And Baal is often associated as well with the Valley of Hinnom, again, where child sacrifice took place. As you mentioned earlier, uh, this letter was probably written before Josiah's reform had taken place. And so these things were still prevalent at the time of the letter. Well, Nick, we also see in verse 5 that it's not just Baal that Yahweh wants to remove. It says that he wants to remove all those who bow down to the host of heaven and who swear by Milcom. So why don't you talk to us for a second. Who are the host of heaven and Milcom? Yeah, Milcom is a, a, an Ammonite deity, also known as uh, Molech, 
First Kings 11.33 talks about Molech, the Ammonite, God of the Ammonites. Uh, and so here's another God that Israel regularly flirted with throughout their history. And worship of this God included child sacrifice. Your children, you would pass your child through the fire alive as a ritual sacrifice. Uh, host of heaven, <clears throat> these seem to be various luminous bodies in the sky, sun, moon, stars. They were regarded as uh, deities, as gods, and therefore they were worshipped. Uh, worship, as the text indicates, involved going up on the rooftop of your house. And what I found was this was typically done at night. So uh, that's what I found. What did you find, Alex? Yeah, Molech, Chemosh, and Milcom are, I think, all separate deities. Um, they appear that way in First Kings eleven four through eight, uh, and Yah. But they're both. But both Molech and Milcom are deities of Ammon. So uh, that's why some people think maybe they're the same deity. Uh, Yahweh specifically points them out as being especially detestable. They were all introduced to Israel through the wisest man on earth, Solomon who was convinced by his foreign wives to do so, and they apparently appealed to his other head for consideration, not so mm. wise. The hosts of heaven are the sun, moon, and stars. Uh, they were considered by the nations to be gods, to be deities. Yahweh allotted those gods to rule the nations, uh, but Yahweh, he would rule his people, Israel. And you get that from Deuteronomy four nineteen through 21. I've read a ritual where the priests of Ishtar... They wanted to make her presence available at multiple temple sites. And so they go to the rooftop of the current temple and they somehow direct and funnel the starlight of a specific star, the star of Ishtar, into a bucket of water and oil. And then they use that water to wipe down the new idol statue that's in the new temple, which puts the presence of that deity into the new site. It multiplies Ishtar's presence to occupy both spaces. So you capture the starlight, the essence of that deity, and then you spread it to other places. And so that's hmm. one conception of uh, omnipresence, you know, f for the other deities in the ancient Near East. So that's a little bit of what I found for the host of heaven and Milcom. You were right about child sacrifice, though. That's, uh, I think, probably the, the, the only thing that's that's really more shocking, and I wrote about this in my uh, thesis a little bit, the only thing that's more shocking than the presence of child sacrificed uh, in the ancient Near East is the frequency at which it happens. It's like, not yeah. only did it happen, but it happened a lot, quite a bit. Yeah. And there are a few argu arguments out there that say, oh, passing through the fire is just a ritual where they, the baby just uh, barely touches the, the tips of the flames, and, and it's just a dedication ceremony. She's like, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a simple concordant search will show you that this was real sacrifice where babies were killed and uh, the blood and bodies were used for uh, ritual. And so, yeah, that's – and if you if you don't believe me, you have questions about that, just email me at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com and I'll send you my thesis and I'll show you the verses. Yeah. Well, anyway, Nick, verse 6. Uh, Israel, God's people, uh, they were not – following or seeking or inquiring from Yahweh. They were from other gods. But why don't you unpack for us, what does it actually mean to follow and seek and inquire from Yahweh? Yeah, following and, and seeking Yahweh, no doubt, meant to observe Torah, uh, the law, to keep the law, and therefore worship Yahweh in 
the manner that he prescribed inquiry of Yahweh, then would be to seek him for guidance through prophetic utterance. All of these terms are connected to worship. And so God's people, they have turned back from worshiping Yahweh. While they worship every other deity under and including the sun in a syncretistic hodgepodge, Yahweh is ignored. And they you know, the don't word want that anything to come. Right. Yeah. The, the word that seems to come to mind here for me is, is loyalty, right? Well, what do you do if you're following or seeking or inquiring? You're showing your loyalty. And that's the same word, I think, that covers not only these uh, terms in the Old Testament about faithfulness to Yahweh, but also I think is the best umbrella term to cover faithfulness to Jesus in the New Testament. Faithfulness to God as a Christian. Loyalty is the overarching theme here. Uh, Nick, uh, we have uh, some verses about the day of Yahweh. You said, is it is it up to 19 times it's mentioned in this letter? Yeah, that's, uh, that's what I stumbled across. And, I, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. I, a quick note about that. Um, emphasis on the day of Yahweh uh, being at hand for Judah uh, seems to relate to, yeah, this impending judgment. The Babylonians here in a few decades will come in and they will wipe out Jerusalem and Judah and all the surrounding nations as well. And the picture involves cosmic cataclysms, but points to this temporal judgment of a nation and these other nations as well. And I just wanted to throw in that for me, it's not to say that there won't be an end to the world, right? Because we have, I mean, the day of Yahweh, chapter 1, verse 7, verse 8, verse 10, verses 14 through 16, verse 18. It's a big theme within this letter. But I don't think that means um, there won't be an end of the world just because it's pointing towards these temporal judgments. I think all of these temporal judgments point to a very real destruction of all things eventually, especially when we get to the New Testament and it picks up the same kind of language like in Second Peter chapter 3. So uh, and, just throwing out some more things about the day of the the day of Yahweh and the language involved there because it's a big deal, right? People build large schools of theology and eschatology around these verses, pointing only towards the end of the world, and they ignore the temporal judgment that is actually meant for the audience to which it is written. Any thoughts there, Nick? Uh, you can go back into the uh, swordplay archives, by the way, when we covered Second Peter many, many moons ago. Right. <laughs> and we talked specifically about chapter 3 and, uh, and, and what's going on there and, and what's being talked about. But you're exactly right. Uh, all this uh, temporal judgment, the, the judgment that happens in time points us to an even greater judgment that will happen at the end of time. So, <clears throat> Very good, very good. Well, Nick, verse 7, Yahweh says that he has prepared a sacrifice. He's brought his guests and sanctified them. What's the sacrifice of Yahweh? Who are his guests? Uh, so interesting <clears throat> that uh, this idea of the sacrifice of Yahweh, there, it has counterparts in Isaiah 34, verse 6, Jeremiah 46, and verse 10. And uh, in those places, uh, I want to say, is it, uh, what, Babylon and then Edom? Anyway, it has to do with other nation, these other nations as being kind of the sacrifice. Here, Judah is Yahweh's prepared sacrifice, which will be consumed by his guests. And in this case, his guests are the Babylonians. Um, uh, while the whole nation 
can be and perhaps is in view. Yahweh specifically hones in on the officials and the king's sons, uh, members of the royal family, and we're uh, going to unpack that here in just a moment. But uh, focuses on them and also upon those who are responsible for social injustice in the land. Now, uh, you know, just as I do, sacrifices are slaughtered. Right. Uh, the sacrifice does not survive. Uh, the, the, the animal does not survive the sacrifice. And so Judah would be slaughtered by her enemies. Uh, and in this case, Yahweh has become her enemy. In other words, those who ignored and neglected the sacrifices that Yahweh required would now become the required sacrifice for Yahweh's wrath. You have this this twist, this reversal going on here. Right. Uh, what do you think, Alex? You know, having already mentioned Milcom, Baal, child sacrifice, I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 30, verse 33. I think you mentioned Isaiah as well. In that verse, the king of Assyria he is being condemned, and Yahweh is said to have prepared his own Topheth, which Topheth was a furnace for sacrifice, mentioned as being located in the Valley of Hinnom. Nineveh will become a giant Topheth in 612 BC, just as Jerusalem will become a giant Topheth in 586 BC. Jeremiah 19, 11-13 speaks to that. You know, the things that they did in sacrifice to other gods— burning their children in the fire, in the valley of Hinnom, in these Topheths. God, Yahweh, he will do the very thing that they did. It will be put back on them. So what they did in sacrifice to other gods will become the things done to them in judgment. And Jerusalem itself will become like a whole burnt sacrifice uh, uh, consumed by the flames. (laughs) So, So that's... Some of the things I saw here with um, Yahweh's sacrifice and his guests. Well, Nick, verse 8, why does Yahweh specifically target the princes, the king's sons? I mean, if this is during the reign of Josiah, isn't Josiah a good king? Well, to be sure, uh, as far as kings go, Josiah was a good king. I mean, he did lead that reformation and all that. He has his clay feet, uh, especially kind of at the end of his reign. Um, But, yeah, in the main, good king. However, his son, Jehoahaz, did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to 2 Kings 23 and verse 31. In fact, every last king after Josiah was a moral failure worse than the previous king before him. So. The punishment is fit for these descendants of Josiah because of their wickedness. At the same time, officials here in verse 8, that's how my English standard reads, this could also be translated as princes and taken together, princes and king's sons, the higher echelons of government power are in view. So the government leaders, the royal power, royal family, they will be visited by Yahweh Uh, with punishment for their wicked behavior. Wow. It kind of reminds me of Eli and his, you know, his great priest and judge uh, of high priest of Yahweh, and yet his sons were very wicked, very wicked. Um, Just kind of shows you the importance, right, of where 
do you direct your attention and ministry? It can't only be outward, right? It still has to be inward within your own household. Uh, Nick, there's another description here in verse 8 talking about uh, their garments, and Yahweh condemns them for, for their foreign garments. Why does Yahweh care about what they wear, their garments? Well, clearly Zephaniah was opposed to outsourcing labor. He wanted the tags in their clothing to say, made in Zion, right? Um, actually, this is probably related to the uh, polytheistic syncretism which Zephaniah is condemning. Dressing in foreign clothing, that was a visual signal that you wanted to be like the Assyrians or like the Babylonians or like, well, fill in the blank. Uh, whoever else. In every possible way you wanted to be like them. Not just fashion, but inwardly in observance of the ritual of their deities. So that could be uh, part of why the garments, the attire, the foreign attire is mentioned. What do you think? I agree. Uh, These garments clearly have a religious association, especially in the context of verse 9, which will refer to Yahweh's house. And an interesting cross-reference, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 22, where uh, Jehu, king of uh, Israel, he tricks all of the worshipers of Baal, uh, and then he kills them. But in the process, it mentions how special garments are brought out for the Baal worshipers. It sounds like ceremonial clothing for Baal worship. And perhaps those religious garments are in view here, and thus the king's own sons may have been complicit in Baal worship. And so that could be going on in the background as well. Well, Nick, uh, verse 9, Who then filled the house of Yahweh with violence and deceit, and how did they do that? It seems that those who uh, filled the house with violence and deceit were those who also leaped or leap over the threshold, those who leap over the threshold. Um, And that is description of a pagan custom, probably in reference to the Philistine god Dagon. Uh, When the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, they take it back to the temple of Dagon, put it in there. They wake up the next morning. Dagon is face down before the Ark. Uh, well, they set him up. Something, you know, must have happened. And uh, the next day they wake up, and what is it? His head is gone. His yeah, hands are right. cut off. And uh, what, they're put in the threshold, something like that. So from that day forward, we're told they no longer stepped on the threshold. They would leap over. They would step over the threshold. Uh, that could be the source of this. Or it could be related to a belief that demons reside near the threshold of doors. This is another uh, pagan belief. Uh, It could be that um, these violent frauds were so quick to visit violence upon people that they just raced right over the threshold. Uh, That's the leaping over the threshold. They just couldn't get in there fast enough. And presumably, the stolen goods would then be offered to a pagan deity. So, Seems like any way you cut it, the, the idea here is this is something pagan. This is something that is not of Yahweh, and um, that's who these guys are, these violent frauds. Yeah, yeah, and I think there are a few occasions, too, where you see that other um, idols had made it into the temple. They had worshipped the uh, bronze snake on a, on a pole, right, that Moses had made. They had worshipped that. <laughs> right. Um, they had put an Asherah pole in the temple. I think that eventually made it in there. And so uh, there was definitely 
wrong things going on on temple grounds and and really just like the temple before uh rome destroys it in 70 a.d uh these elites these religious leaders uh they were corrupt they were deceitful they robbed widows households um they were whitewashed tombs and so it's interesting to see the parallels between the moral state of the religious leaders and elites before the first destruction of the temple and before the second destruction of the temple and how well they parallel one another now nick verse 11 um this is an interesting verse it says that uh whale o inhabitants of the mortar for all the people of canaan will be silenced all who weigh out silver will be cut off um what do the Canaanites have to do with anything? I thought we were talking about Jerusalem and Judah. Uh, weren't the Canaanites wiped out centuries earlier during the conquest of Joshua? So the New American Standard in text says Canaanites. My English Standard has a footnote, uh, all the people of Canaan. Um, and and that probably follows the, the Septuagint. You look at the Septuagint, it says uh, Canaanites, people of Canaan. Most other English translations read merchants. The NIV has that. Traders is what uh, uh, my English standard as well as the New Revised Standard version say. And then merchant people is what the Old King James and the New King James, uh, how they translate that. And such a translation, I think, retains the commercial aspect of this verse. The mortar, mortar, probably is a place where commerce was carried out. Merchants or traders, they would gather together to do business there. And so the mortar would lament that all its clients are cut off. There could be a double meaning in view here. The Canaanites were stereotyped as merchant people. And so Yahweh is saying that his people have become in business like the Canaanites, uh, which would that's a derogatory thing. I think it's going on here. Not a good thing uh, for his people to be Canaanites because, as you mentioned, they were to be driven from the land uh, during the conquest. So uh, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think I kind of lean more towards the derogatory interpretation. I think Yahweh is calling his people a bunch of Canaanites. And remember, it was the wickedness of the Canaanites that caused them to fall under judgment in the first place and their land given over to Israel. Now, Israel has become even worse than the Canaanites. There are several verses that uh, talk about that throughout the prophets and the Psalms. Yeah, the Israelites became worse than the Canaanites. So should God not judge them in the same way? And I think that's perhaps the the intended message here in verse 11. Nick, in verse 12, what does it mean for Jerusalem to be searched with lamps? This is something Yahweh said he'll do. What do you think that is? I think the thoroughness of the search is intended by that searching with lamps. Uh, in the ancient Near East, invaders would make a similar search. They would use clay lamps to search every corner of a city for any item of value, just anything they could get. Uh, given what the rest of the verse says, it seems more fitting to read this kind of as the intensity of Yahweh's search. It's not unlike the woman in a parable Jesus told who lost a coin of the 10 coins that she had, Luke chapter 15. And so I think that's the idea here, just the intensity of Yahweh's search. It will be thorough, uh, the, the search that he makes of the city. 
Uh, what do you think? I think this may have some additional spiritual overtones as well. Uh, symbolically, right, the land was going to revert back to uninhabited chaos and darkness, like at the beginning of creation. Also, uh, God is judging their stagnant spirit and heart, which are components of our inner being, which was supposed to be full of light because of Yahweh's life force within us. But within Israel, that had become full of darkness. So when Yahweh goes in to search people's spirits and hearts, he finds that it's full of darkness and he needs to bring his lamp to search it out, to see where people are at. Just like their land is going to become a reflection of that. It's going to become spiritual darkness, profane space. Sacred space has now left and now it is going to be a place of uh, chaos and destruction. Now, Nick, um, there are those in Israel who would hear this message and they would say, no, Yahweh, he doesn't really get involved. He doesn't do good. He doesn't do evil. Why would they think that? Why would they think Yahweh would be inactive in verse 12? Several commentators indict Judah of being practical atheists. Um, the end of the verse, Yahweh will not do good, nor will he do ill. Uh, that's what they believed about God. Um, he does neither good nor harm. How wrong they are. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yahweh, he sees everything. He knows everything. He's going to use those lamps to search Jerusalem, to hunt them down, to find them. And so they, the day of the Lord is inescapable. That's the idea here. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, this is the, uh, the doctrine of deism, right? That God is distant. He wound up the world with natural law and let it unspin itself. Uh, the deistic God is always more convenient for those who wish to not act righteously, for those who wish to not suffer for their wickedness, or for those who want to justify their own autonomy and lawlessness as necessary since God won't act, and therefore they project their own indifference onto God. Uh, God must not care because nothing's changing around me, so why should I care? Or God's not acting because nothing's changing around me, so I guess I'll have to act. And therefore the ends justifies the means. This deception is still remained around in Peter's day, Second Peter chapter 3, people saying, where's, where's the return of his coming? Uh, the world keeps spinning like it always has. That deception remains in place today, right? And so this is a, this is a dangerous line of, of thinking, and uh, that's, that's part of the problem here why the day of Yahweh is coming upon Jerusalem. Well, how quickly was the day of Yahweh coming to them, Nick, in verse 14? The text says, uh, near and hastening fast. Uh, that's the English standard. Or quickly could be translated there, near, quickly. Uh, these are terms which indicate the soonness of the impending disaster. And depending upon when one dates the ministry of Zephaniah, it could have been less than two decades away the Bible Knowledge Commentary, uh, the author of the section of Zephaniah, has it at, uh, if I remember right, 17 years, because of when they date Zephaniah's ministry. Um, even with the date that I go with, which backs it up a little bit further, it's less than four decades away, which on uh, an apocalyptic calendar, uh, that's like a minute and a half. All right, right? This is <laughs> no time at all uh, before the day of Yahweh comes. Uh, so uh, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, that's right. 20 to 40 years may seem like a long time, right? Especially uh, for 
you and I, people our age, we're not even 40 yet. But that's pretty quick for the end of a nation. And so when when Yahweh brings about the end of a nation, um, there's there's no one who can say, didn't see that one coming. It's like, no, it, it builds up for quite a while. He shows patience for a long time. And even when it leads up to the moment of destruction, there's a long lead up, 20 to 40 years. Wow, that's a long time. Even uh, it, it, when, when Zephaniah is warning them. But like you said, on the apocalyptic calendar, the eschatological calendar, that's not very that's not very long. And when it does happen, when the Babylonians come, it will be fast, uh, and there will be a swift end to Jerusalem. Uh, now, before the end of Jerusalem comes, there seems to be precursors, verse 17. Does Yahweh always first bring distress before he brings death? It sure sounds like it there. You just read verse 17, starts with, I will bring distress, and it ends with blood being poured out like dust. Um, they're they're going to end up walking around blind, and that just kind of leaves them open for the death blow. So uh, my read, it sounds like it. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think he does. There's always the uh, series of warnings and series of signs leading up to uh, the ultimate point of destruction. And so... Uh, yeah, distress first and then death. I really hate to think about that during current events, but uh, mm. <laughs> yikes. <Nope. laughs> so we'll see. Now, verse 17 also, blood is compared to dust, flesh is compared to dung. Uh, talk to us about that picture, Nick. It seems to be that of a dusty street in a ghost town. And once the blind sinners are struck down, their blood is poured out into the streets. And the copious amounts of blood from the dead bodies is going to cover the street, just like dust covers their dusty roads back then. The flesh, the NIV translates that as entrails. Uh, the, the flesh in the streets is going to be as prominent as dung piles. Now, you got to remember, this is the ancient Near East. They didn't have plumbing like we have in America, so forgive the graphic language, but feces would have gone out into the street and just kind of piled up. So um, the bodies of the dead, even their guts, is going to litter the streets. And so poetic and graphic picture of, yeah, you you guys are going to die in the streets when the day of Yahweh comes. Um, what do you think, Alex? You know, I think it's a, a throwback to Adam, right? From dust you came, to dust you shall return. Hmm. Uh, when innocent blood is shed, it cries out from the ground to Yahweh for vengeance, uh, like, like the blood of uh, Abel after Cain murders him. Now a land full of blood guilt, uh, which Israel was a land full of blood guilt. Think of all the innocent children sacrificed. That can only be cleansed by the shedding of the blood of those who are guilty, Again, think about child sacrifice in Israel. Life was in the blood, and it would return to dust to cleanse the land. The clay bodies of the guilty would be the compost by which the start for the land could, could start over again. So, uh, this again, theme of reversal, taking it back to a new beginning, a new creation. Uh, those themes still run throughout the chapter. Nick, verse 18. 
It says Yahweh will make an end to all the inhabitants of the earth. Did Yahweh do that? Well, as uh, mentioned in verses 2 and 3, I take uh, this kind of language, the, the universal language of judgment and and even the, the elimination of all people and objects and animals and all that, uh, I take it as hyperbolic, hyperbole, exaggerated, figurative poetry. And, and that is intended to communicate just the completeness, the totality of the judgment for Judah and also for uh, the world. And that is what's pictured here. Um, and by the way, uh, sil- neither silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them. That's just going to get in the way, all right? You can't buy your way out of the day of the Lord. That's right. Um, is what God is saying here. doesn't matter how much uh, money you have. All, all the money in the world isn't going to save you from it. That's part of this as well, I think. Uh, one other way of taking earth here, again, that's how my English standard, all the earth, all the inhabitants of the earth, uh, that's how my English standard translates it. That can also be translated as land. And so all the land would experience the consuming wrath of God, talking about the land, the promised land, Judah. Right, right. And and so they did. Uh, that's that's what happened. Um, so a couple ways of looking at it. What do you think? Yep, I agree. Uh, the inhabitants of the land, uh, an end was made to that, uh, to the, the degree that satisfied Yahweh's judgment. Uh, the picture, I think, still serves a purpose, though, in the greater collage of eschatology by which we know the world will be set right again and Eden will be restored. And so we take these descriptions of temporal judgment uh, in their proper context, not ignoring uh, the audience to which it was written, and it still serves in the greater collage, the greater picture of what eventually will happen on a grander scale, uh, a real return to Eden, which... Uh, you know, you have these resets. The big reset was the flood, and then all the other smaller temporal resets get compared to the flood. But there is going to be a bigger reset, which will be back to the Garden of Eden. And that's uh, our hope in the resurrection, is to be with our family, God's family, ruling over the earth as Eden. And it's a it's a great hope and promise that we've been given, by which we live by faith. Any final thoughts, Nick, before we get to our featured creature? What stood out to me were the uh, uh, the connections you made to Second Peter, especially chapter three. Uh, good connections there. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, and a reminder to our audience: go check that in the archives, or just open your Bible, go back read Second Peter three. It'll help you with Zephaniah one. Now, uh, this week's featured creature. What do we have, Nick? Featured creature. <laughs> <laughs> That was creepy. <laughs> the goat demon, or Alex, as you like to call it. Donkey centaur. That's right. That's, Who doesn't that's like our... to say donkey centaur? Isn't that a fun word? <laughs> it's our featured creature uh, this week. Goat demon or the donkey centaur. Also known as the hairy demon or the hairy goat-like demon. There are a total of four references that I could find to the goat demon in the Hebrew Bible. Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 7, and uh, the proximity there to the goat for Azazel or Azazel in chapter 16 lends itself to comparison, I think. 2 Chronicles 11, verse 15, there are goat idols, and presumably those idols are for these goat demons or this goat god. 
Isaiah 13 and verse 21, there Babylon will become a desolate place where wild goats will dance, and the context indicates that the animals there stand for uh, possible demonic entities. So the wild goat there is uh, our friend, the goat demon. Well, not our friend, our enemy, (laughs) the goat demon. And then Isaiah 34, verse 14, this is, uh, the reference here is in connection to Lilith. We talked about her last week. Uh, if you want more information on her, you can see the previous episode. Now, the early appearance, uh, Leviticus 17 and verse 7, that early appearance of goat demons in the Torah, that may indicate that the Israelites became acquainted with the Egyptian deity Mendes, probably mispronounced that, but uh, this deity was one of the eight principal deities of the Egyptians, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, he was a goat, or had a goat head or something like that, or a goat body. Anyway, worship of these goat demons included bestiality, so, you know, that's a thing, right? It's a common theme that we've run across today. You start worshiping these other gods, and they're having you do some really sick stuff. And uh, you wanted to worship one of these goat idols, the goat demon, the donkey centaur. Uh, worship included bestiality. So, ugh. Um, that's what I found, Alex. What'd you find? Yeah, well, I mean, think about uh, that is the path of idolatry. It, it darkens your mind. It sears your conscience. You end up doing these detestable things, and you like it. So here's what I found on the uh, goat demon or donkey centaur. The Hebrew for goat demon is seir. Although the term can refer to a regular young male goat, uh, the Septuagint counterpart in the Greek is onokentaros, which is translated as donkey centaur. Here it is. The Greek term is also parallel to the Hebrew e which is translated in some verses as wolves, jackals, or hyenas, in other verses like Isaiah 13.22 and 34.11. So if you go with the Masoretic text, then these creatures are half goat, half human, like the satyr from Greek mythology. If you go with the Septuagint, then these creatures are half donkey, half human, like the Onocentaur from Greek mythology. When looking at the biblical text, these goat demons live in the desert, waterless places, wasteland, out in the uninhabitable chaos and untamable wilderness. In other words, the opposite of Eden or holy space. So when a city or nation begins the descent into ungodliness, their territory starts to look like a nice piece of future real estate for the satyrs. Alexander the Great, when he was besieging the island of Toure, had a dream of a dancing satyr who told him that Toure was his. That was generous. Alexander subsequently sacked the island of Toure by building a giant bridge connecting it to the mainland. Satyrs are best known for their numerous exploits to kidnap and rape nymphs and women alike. I even found an ancient Greek coin from the 6th century BC that depicted such a scene. Why would you want that on your money? Anyway, (laughs) besides walking around naked and erect all the time, thankfully mostly in remote places, these creatures are also known for dancing, which sounds a lot like Isaiah 13, 21. They also enjoy copious amounts of wine, which is why they like hanging out with the Greek god Dionysius, where entertainment includes orgies and, as you mentioned, bestiality. Satyrs often get conflated with pans and fawns, but they're all scary goat-demon hybrids, if you ask me. So, Hmm. 
If you're off-roading one day and see in the distance what might possibly be a naked goat herder dancing and playing the flute, it may actually be a satyr who wants to rape or rob you. Best just to keep driving and plug your ears if you can. Their music is known to hypnotize. Hmm. Uh, and that's our featured creature. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, there may be a pop culture reference here. Um, uh, full disclosure, I didn't see the movie, but there was a movie that came out about five years ago called The Witch. And the family in the movie had a billy goat uh, that they called Black Philip. And I think at one point in the movie, he, like, starts dancing or morphs into something. I don't know, because I didn't see the movie. But uh, that could be a possible pop culture reference there. But Remember that movie that came out, like, I don't know, like maybe 12 or 13 years ago? It's called Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's another satyr pop that's culture right. reference right there. Lives in the underground, right? He, yeah, that's right. Uh, becomes good friends with this little girl. Uh, Gets her to do weird stuff. Super weird stuff, man. Like going to the pale man's room and oh, that's that's a creepy scene, man. Yeah, yeah, it's a mess. That who directed that movie? He he does all kinds of messed up movies. Oh, um, uh, can't think of it off the top of my head. Uh, Del Toro. Is that there it is. Yeah, Guillermo Del Toro. And. Uh, he had, he had another movie that came out a few years ago that was about some water creature, water god or, or water demon or whatever, and ends up this lady ends up falling in love with him and weird. Oh, oh yeah, Shape of Water. Shape of yeah. Water. Yeah, yeah. So that guy, he. Uh, There's your Dagon reference, by the way, right? Yeah, yeah. So Del Toro is really into all these occultic, uh, demonic things, and so he wants he wants to to be popular and, and liked by the public uh, by the public mind. So. Uh, yeah, interesting. Bad stuff. The more you know. The more you know. <laughs> All right, well, we uh, will continue this conversation with Zephaniah Chapter 2. In the meantime, Nick, what can our audience do? Go into the iTunes uh, store or the Google Play Music store and search Swordplay. All, our, all of our archives are there. You can download them to your particular device, take them with you on the go. Uh, leave a review. That'll help us boost the podcast in those respective places. Share it on social media as well if it's been helpful for you. Alex, if folks have a question, can they send it in somewhere? Absolutely. Send it to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts and comments and um and answer your questions, even put it on the air. So feel free to email us at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Well, like I said, we'll see you next time for Zephaniah Chapter 2 on another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.